You are listening to the official podcast of Salem Tabernacle in Beacon, New York. A community of people devoted to experiencing life as God meant it to be. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this space. We thank you for your unyielding presence in our life. And we just pray that uh, today you will help us continue to heal and continue to recover the purpose that you've given us as humans made in your image. In your name. Amen. Amen. Can we just start out with like two more minutes of closing our eyes and just like thinking through something? Sure. So when we played that song for the first time, we had talked about how Moses was told to take his feet off and touch the ground. And it was holy ground because God's presence was there. So I think we should just close our eyes for two more minutes because uh, I was thinking as the song was playing, there's a, it's a technique in psychology that they talk about where if your emotions are feeling um, all over the place or they're bubbling over um, and you're, you're having trouble sifting through them or you're just, you're feeling a lot of extreme emotions that you sit and you close your eyes and you think through, and I want you to do this right now, to think through uh, what what you are feeling, take some deep breaths, what are you actually feeling, you feel the chair under you, what are you breathing in, you're breathing in the breath that God gave you, and the reason why I felt like we should do that right now is not just for the psychological reason, but really because everything that we're feeling and uh, breathing in, the things that we smell right now, uh, the, the holy ground that we're feeling, that's all God's presence. God is in all of those things. And so I just want us to be reminded that as we're sitting here feeling real world and real life and feeling all of our senses, that God is actually in all of those. And this is really what prayer is, is is connecting with God through all the things in our world, through our breath, in and out. We breathe God's presence in and out. And we can take two seconds in our day at any time to close our eyes and just feel the presence of God and say, God, I believe you're here with me. Speak to me. I'm open to hearing you. And then respond to him. When Jacqueline and I first learned about uh, doing the daily office, one of the things that Bishop Ed Gunger said when he taught it to us was, when you get quiet, don't, when you're you're gonna take quiet time, this is for people whose homes are just like on the go. Like there's noise, there's people, there's stuff going on, especially, you know, it's for everybody, but especially where it's like, I can't get any quiet. He, He talked about how when we get quiet, the things we hear around us are the things that God is talking to us about. So we, you know, when, when I do the daily office early in the morning, one of the when I get up early enough, one of the sounds that I hear that I never would have thought of in a million years, it would have just been normative, 
is I can start to hear everybody begin to wake up upstairs. Hear Sophia get up first, and then she always comes down to see me in my office. Because you get up at 5.30 in the morning. Get up early. And <laughs> Sophia comes down the stairs so slow. And I know she's going she's gonna to come in, so I don't want to, like, start a new paragraph or write, start writing something down or start typing something that I'm thinking about. So I'm waiting for her to come down, and it's like one step. Two steps. And I'm like, just come down! Please come down the stairs so I can hug you and then say, do you want me to put on a show for you? And then, but like what happens is and then like you hear Theo and then I hear Jacqueline get Theo and then I can hear his feet walking around. And all of a sudden, it, I never would have paid attention to those sounds, but they're some of the most amazing moments now. To hear your house wake up, to hear your neighborhood start to come alive. Like you can hear people getting in their cars, all of a sudden traffic picks up outside. Like all these sounds, these are things that God is talking to you about. And he's going to talk to you through these things. And so it's just when, if you feel like I can't get peace and quiet, just get yourself quiet. And then the next few sounds you hear, whatever they are, even if they're you being interrupted, right then and there, say, Lord, this is what you're, this is what we're talking about right now. Like this, Sophia coming downstairs, this is what we're talking about right now. Or, you know, my neighbors starting their car in the winter and having blasting the music, but they're going to go back inside now for 45 minutes until their car gets warm. And, you know, I'm listening to, you know, oldies radio out there. And now all of a sudden some of the songs that I used to listen to back in the day are on it. And, you know, it's like, but like, no, these are the things that God, and he's not talking to me about those songs. He's talking to me about... What's happening in me when these sounds start to occur? And so you, you can never get interrupted. Your prayer can never be interrupted. It just, it just flows through everything that's happening. But prayer can never be interrupted. It just changes shape as things begin to occur. So I thought that was really good. I'm happy you did that. And just practice that. Don't, don't fight. To be, it's just never quiet around me. Just get yourself quiet. Listen to the sounds. Those are things that God is talking to you through or about or using to provoke a thought that he wants to talk to you about. Does that make sense? Can you, Ian, we're, we're going to skip the review. We're just going to go right to today. So we're going to start with the texts, and then we're going to just skip uh, those first two parts we had and go right to things. So Jacqueline's going to read some Bible verses for us, and then we'll talk about prayer for a little bit before breakfast. Genesis 3. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the pool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked. And I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat 
and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. The next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Pause right there. I never realized how obnoxious Nathanael is right there. He's like, I don't, nothing good could come out of Nazareth. And then Jesus is like, oh, somebody who has no deceit in them. And he's like, oh, how do you know me? Like, just compliment. He's like, oh, you do? Maybe you are a prophet. Anyway, continue. I'm sorry. Nathaniel answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. And then in Matthew, in the morning as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, may no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. You would have been good at that. <laughs> Withering fig trees, yes. <laughs> When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Okay, so we just wanted to share a little bit lighter content than the previous two months. This is kind of going to flow nicely. Um, we're going to talk a little bit about the kind of prayer that we just read about in those three stories. We're going to break for breakfast, and then we're going to go through Psalm 22 as an exercise to show what happens and what is supposed to happen when we're praying. And so the first thing we want to say is that all three of these encounters have to do with prayer. Adam and Eve are praying Whenever they're talking to God, whenever anybody in the Bible is talking to the Father, the Son, or the Holy Spirit, it's a story about prayer. Stories about prayer are not just Jesus went to pray. Anytime anybody is talking to God or talking to Jesus or the Holy Spirit is speaking, it's stories about prayer. So the minute God shows up in the garden and says, where are you? And they said, we're hiding, prayer began. That is a story of prayer. The whole, why are you hiding? Who did this? The woman made me do it. The devil made me do it. We realize all of that is prayer. As soon as Nathaniel meets Jesus and Jesus says, an Israelite in whom there's no deceit, I saw you sitting under the fig tree today. Prayer has begun. The minute Nathaniel gets up to go to see Jesus, prayer has begun. The minute Philip is talking to Nathaniel about Jesus, prayer has begun. The minute Jesus sees a fig tree and speaks out loud 
and people hear what he's saying, prayer has begun. Jesus, the fig tree withered. How is that possible? Prayer has begun. Anytime God is talking, Jesus is talking, the Spirit is talking, and people can hear it, or they're talking to him, there's stories about prayer. So we don't want to categorize prayer as like this very specific thing that you do privately. Whenever God is communicating to his people, with his people, or his people are communicating with, with each other, prayer is happening. Prayer is happening right now. Where we just heard the Holy Scriptures read, that's God speaking to us. Prayer was happening when you were listening to the Scriptures being read. In the Episcopal Prayer Book, the lesson is called, the, the reading of Scripture is called the lesson. Just the reading of it is called the lesson. Thank God we're not Episcopal because we would be going home now and nobody would want to go home. You want to hear us talk for a really long time. But all of three of those stories are stories about what prayer is meant to be, what it's meant to look like and what's supposed to happen in it. When, why, here, I'll ask you, why did Jesus give us the Our Father prayer? What happened just before Jesus gave the Our Father prayer? Why did he say, pray like this? What happened just before? They asked him, teach us to pray. Now think about this. They say to God, they go to God and say, teach us to pray. Jesus says, when you pray, pray like this. Our Father in heaven, right? But there's an irony in the simplicity of the story that's so simple, we miss it. When they went to Jesus and said, teach us to pray, they already were praying well. Because that is prayer. I don't know how to pray, Jesus. Teach me to pray. We have the Our Father because they knew how to pray. They just didn't know they knew how to pray. See, we get caught up in what is the right way to pray. The right way to pray is saying the truth about what is true of you to God at any given moment. Teach us to pray. That prayer was so good that it gave us the Our Father. The Our Father prayer exists in the Bible and in every church because the disciples knew how to pray by saying, teach us to pray. So prayer isn't about getting an answer as much as it's about revealing to you how true you actually are and how more accurate and how more true you are than you even think. Teach us to pray is one of the best prayers, one of the most freeing prayers, and one of the most crystal clear answered prayers. And we still live off the answer to that prayer. But the phrase, teach us to pray, was itself prayer. So when you're just frustrated, when you're just done, when you have nothing to say to God and you say, I got nothing for you today, I'm getting in my car and I'm going to work, that is one of the most extraordinary prayers you can pray. Mm -hmm. It's one of the truest prayers you can pray. And you, you, it's not about the answer, it's about, in that moment, God revealing to you, you are more right and true than you realize. Like, we owe those guys a debt of gratitude to have the humility to say, teach us to pray. And what an amazing prayer it was. And I think that prayer may be as important as the Our Father. Teach me to pray. Teach me how to talk to you. Teach me. That's a prayer. So I just, as simple as that is, 
it sets in motion a process. And all three of these encounters, we're going to talk about them right now real quick, show that prayer starts a process in our life. Prayer begins a process. The superficial top part of prayer is the thing we're praying about. That is fine. That's there. We got to ask for things, right? You have not because you ask not, and you ask amiss when you do ask. Fine. We're going to learn all that stuff. But more than the thing we're praying about is the process that begins in us when we begin to pray. It sets in motion a process that can last minutes, days, weeks, months, or your entire life. But it starts a process. It's not just about the answer. It's not just about the moment, the thing you're praying about. It brings you into an infinite life called the Trinity. It brings you into infinity when you begin to pray. And it starts a process in your past, present, and future. Prayers that you prayed years and years ago are still in process. They're still in process. And the process isn't just the answer. The process is what's happening to you during the course of this whole process. And it happens whether we're aware of it or not. The, the gift that Jacqueline and I felt we wanted to give today is... It's exciting to be aware of the good things that are happening around us because life has a funny way of causing us to focus on what's going wrong. And it's important once in a while to just clean off the wound and realize it's not as bad as it's bleeding. And there's also a lot of really good things happening. There's a lot of amazing things taking place. We got to focus on what we're praying about. But if we get so like claustrophobic with that one thing we're praying about, we will miss your becoming... So much more of your truest self as you pray, wait through prayer, walk through the answers to those prayers. You are becoming more of you and it's blessing the people around you in ways that you can't even imagine. And when we're aware of it, it's super helpful to us and those around us. Any, any thoughts? Uh, I was just thinking that prayer is also um, never done alone even if it's a prayer of loneliness mm. because uh your prayers are always joining the prayers of the other saints that have come before us or are praying during that time that's the bible talks about all of the prayers being brought before the father and so <clears throat> even when you're feeling that moment of god all i can tell you is just i'm feeling alone i'm feeling frustrated um, I'm feeling unheard. Even those times, your prayer is joining what other people are saying at the same time. So it's never something that is done purely by yourself, even if it feels that way. Absolutely. Uh, one of my favorite lines in the uh, Eucharist liturgy is, joining our voices with angels and archangels and all the company of heaven, we forever sing this hymn. And it's like, in that moment, like, there's a story um, that my bishop told of a man who lost his father, and his father died right in the middle of them having a really bad argument. Like, they, they were having an argument, uh, the son storms out of the house, father leaves to go to work and gets killed in a car accident. Oh. And he, the son obviously gets bitter at God, and he's angry, and it's like, he's living with that weight of, like, the last thing we said to each other were horrible things, and we were yelling at each other. And he kept saying... I wish I could just have one more meal with my dad. Years and years and years later, he's now an older man. He is like Christmas Eve or something like that. He goes to the church. The priest 
does the liturgy. And as the priest says, joining our voices with angels and archangels and all the company of heaven, something started to like burn in him. And he had this sense, when I go up there and get that wafer, I'm having a meal with my dad again. He's like, this is one of the ways that I can still eat with him. On the other side of this, on the side that I can't see, we're sitting down at a table together, having this meal. Like, that, that's mystical, that kind of reality is like, you're never, there's so much going on around us when we pray. We're, we're joining such a genealogy of prayer when we do that. It's powerful, and it doesn't have to be complicated. It's very, very simple. And here's the thing. It took... 20 or 30 years for him to have that experience. There was a process that started. A long process that started, and he had no idea that revelation was coming. But when it did, his life was ready to receive that moment, and it just starts working healing backwards. So you never know what is happening and when it's going to happen, but all your prayers have started a process. And it takes away the urgency. It can help with the urgency or fear that we can have where... Um, especially for those of us who might be older that are praying for our kids or if we're praying for other people to come to know God and we're afraid that, you know, we won't see it happen or we have to somehow see that, that prayer come into fruition while we're still alive so that we know. It, it can take that away to realize that the prayers that we're praying now are, are going to be still a part of what our kids or grandkids yeah. may be praying 40 years from now. That's right. And feel free to talk to us, too. Yeah, yeah Mike. Yeah. Um, is it true, then, like in a corporate situation, you know, like a service, that when one person, we hear one person praying, that that, <coughs> excuse me, uh, is like a springboard for us to begin praying when we hear what other people are saying, uh, like in, in uh, I get that from Luke's account of them asking uh, Jesus to teach us to pray. That was in response to yes. them hearing Jesus pray. And yes. when they heard him pray, they said, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. Yes. What Mike is suggesting is so important. We have to fight these days to live lives of community all the time. Like, they hear people praying, they go ask Jesus to pray, they didn't realize that they prayed an amazing prayer when they asked Jesus to pray. Jesus teaches them how to pray. We all now join that prayer for 2,000 plus years. Since we were little kids, we learned that prayer. And so, praying begets praying. When you're praying by yourself, you're praying with all the company of heaven. When you're praying with other people, prayer inspires prayer. It's important to listen to what's being prayed. I mean, uh, Bishop Q has us going through a class on how to pray out loud to your church in a way that invites them to join you in prayer. I mean, these are techniques that the church has learned for a long time, and it's exactly right. When you hear people pray, it inspires it. We have to fight to have a, live a life of community. We have to get together and pray. We have to have monthly, weekly moments where just a few of us get together and pray. It's important because it, it causes you to remember that you can do this. It causes you to remember that you can fight through the next day when you pray with a couple of people. Right? It causes you to remember that it sucks right now, but it's going to be okay. Like These things are helpful when we pray. So, anybody ever sit down to pray and feel some turbulence? 
It's not working very well. We have a quote for that. Turbulence, then, is not a sign that our feelings are not being touched by God. Rather, it may well be a sign that we are facing the realities of our situation, including the reality of our response or lack of response to God. I'll read it again. When we pray, turbulence, then, is not a sign that our feelings are not being touched by God. In other words, I'm feeling turbulence because he's not giving me peace. That's not happening. It's not a sign that our feelings are not being touched by God. Rather, it may well be a sign that we are facing the realities of our situation, including the reality of our response or lack of response to God. I am going to say this tomorrow too, so everybody just act surprised and give me some amens when I say it tomorrow. (laughs) But I never saw this until I read this quote, that when Adam hid, when Adam and Eve hid from God, it's because they had a healthy relationship with him. Have you met somebody that's so done with you that you could scold them and they stand there and just not care? Essie <laughs> just had some violent thoughts go through her head, I feel like. <laughs> you, ever, you ever just meet that person or maybe you've been there yourself where you're like, it just doesn't matter. Like you, you just, you're, you're disengaged from a person, from a boss, from an employee, whatever it is, and it just doesn't matter anymore. When Adam heard God coming and hid, it reveals that he still had a deep reverence for who God was. Otherwise, he would have just been like, I don't care. You shouldn't be eating that tree. Whatever, I'm going to eat it again. I don't care. But he hid because there's something still healthy in him. Now, God wants it to be more healthy. God wants Adam to realize you don't have to hide from me. But there's this sense, and it's in, it's in our text for tomorrow too, where when we lose trembling, we've lost our reverence. When the sound of God coming into our life doesn't bother us, if something should bother us or get us excited, if it should, when there's no feeling, we've lost our reverence. But when you're, when you're just being nasty one day and all of a sudden you think about going to church or you feel the Holy Spirit show up or you, you know, you're going to have people over for ministry some of our worst arguments were like 10 seconds before we opened the door to people coming over house like hate you we're gonna get divorced we're gonna hey good to see you guys we're so glad you're here like in that moment you're like i just want to hide like we're not worthy of this what is going on you know that feeling that you get it's like i we we are literally going to minister after we just said these things to each other like what's wrong with us that feeling shows that there's still reverence for good the good things of god and a sense that you're falling short of a standard that is healthy to have. So Adam hiding isn't just bad. It's also, God wants a better response than that, but it's still not a terrible response because Adam still cares. He still cares about God. He cares about what God thinks, and he's hiding. So prayer process. It opens us to our hiding. Hiding from others and hiding from God is also hiding from ourselves. It opens us to our hiding, hiding from others, and hiding from God is also (coughs) hiding from ourselves. So when we pray, we might feel turbulence, and that turbulence might not be bad. It might be the reality of what's going on inside of us at the time. It may be the fact that we're hiding, and and God is calling us to come out in all of our vulnerabilities. And we're like, "I, I should be feeling peace. Something is wrong with me. No should be feeling turbulence because you're turbulent on the inside. 
And when you're feeling what's actually happening on the inside, God is healing things. I'm super distracted. There's nothing wrong with you. It's because deep down you are distracted. And that distraction is coming out. Because you're living every single day distracted. And don't even realize it. I'm feeling so bored. That's, you're not broken. It's because deep down on the inside you're bored. And that boredom is coming out. Because God wants to heal it. And, and that is, as we see in Genesis, the, the uh, dark and, and the formless void is where the spirit does his creative work. Yes. Right. So that is the material. So we can never feel like this is useless material. That's where the spirit is hovering and creating. So with that said, when you sit down to pray and feel nothing, nothingness is the womb that God creates in. First verse of the Bible. Nothingness is the canvas that God paints on. I sit down to pray. I just feel absolutely empty. You are ready for some let there be's to enter your life now. Sometimes when we sit down to pray, we're not empty enough. And God's got to uproot some stuff to make us empty. And we think something's wrong. I, I, I was feeling so good at the beginning of this week. I, and I've been praying all week. And now I'm getting to Saturday. And now I feel empty. It's because the prayers, he's taking away things that are taking up too much space. He wants to create. Like we joked on Wednesday or on Sunday, Jacqueline used to have swaying space when she was sitting in the row with her families during worship and got annoyed when people were in her swaying space. She just liked to worship God. And if David got too close to her, she'd get annoyed. Get out of my swaying space. And she even bumped into me last Sunday. I don't have rhythm. Swaying is the best I can swaying. do. <laughs> swaying is what we got. With what we have. That's all I have. God wants swaying space in your life, too. He wants room. And if he has to bump into a few things and move them, he wants to have some space to create. Swaying is what we got. Best we can offer. So prayer process opens up our hiding. And it shows us where we're hiding and, and how to come out of that. And then prayer process opens us. And I'm just taking the most simple approach here. But sometimes it's really mind-blowing. Prayer process opens us to a God who shows up because of us, not because of our sin. I said this a few weeks ago at Eucharist. God comes into the Garden of Eden not because Adam and Eve just sinned but because he always comes into the Garden of Eden to see them. We, because of the way the story is laid out, we think that God was not there, and then they sinned, and he's like, now I gotta go. And so he shows up. He shows up because he always shows up. He shows up because of you. He doesn't show up because you did something great and it earned his presence. He doesn't show up because you did something terrible and he needs to scold you. He shows up because all God ever does is show up. He was going to show up in the garden that day regardless of if they did something great, if they did something terrible, or if they just sat there and did nothing. He was going to show up that day. The only thing that changed was their feeling of him showing up. But he wasn't like, think about it from the other side. If they didn't sin, he wouldn't have shown up. He wouldn't have come. That would make us want to sin. <laughs> so we can finally get God to show up. He'd always be around, right? Like, so he was showing up in the garden and prayer reminds us that 
whatever state you're in when you go to pray, God shows up not because you sat down to pray, not because you got it right, not because you got it wrong. Prayer reminds you that he got there before you got there. He just shows up because that's what he does when he loves his children. He shows up. And prayer reminds us that we have a, we have a heavenly father who just shows up because that's what he does. He's not here because he did it great. He's not here because it was terrible. He's here because that's what he does. It's important to know that. And we could talk about this one for a minute or two. Prayer process opens us to the reveal, rebuke, restore action of God. Prayer process opens us to the reveal, rebuke, and restore action of God. He reveals to Adam and Eve that something terrible has happened. He rebukes them and drives them out of the garden. And then guess what God does after he kicks Adam and Eve out of the garden? He kicks himself out with them for the whole rest of this book is God not in the Garden of Eden anymore, but with us where he kicked us out to. You've heard me say this before. Somebody asked me point blank, do you think sin separates us from God? And I said, no, it doesn't. Because if sin separated us from God, he wouldn't have walked into the garden, and he wouldn't have been there for the rest of the whole Bible after he kicked us out of it. He would have still been in the garden. So he kicks them out of the garden, and then packs his own bags and goes with them. So he rebukes, but he also restores. So the process of God is a reveal, a rebuke, and a restore. And just keep in mind, he never rebukes you. He rebukes what's He rebukes the things that are rebuking you. He rebukes the things that are hurting you. He rebukes the things in you that are keeping you from being your true self. So yes, you know, for the example, you really spoke to your spouse very rude. He'll rebuke that, but he's not rebuking you. He's not like denouncing you. He is rebuking the things in you that are keeping you from being like him. When we are confronting people, we need to try to be more surgical. You're never denouncing the person. You're only denouncing those things in them that are keeping them from being their best self. But never them. And God is never like... One of my favorite moments is when Peter sinks in the water, Jesus rebukes him at the same moment he reaches out his hand to save him. So his rebuking and his saving are the same action. Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt while he's picking him up? It's the same action. His rebuke and his salvation are the same action. I was just going to ask you a question. Um, I think sometimes we can rebuke something that that feels like to the person we're rebuking them because it's so entwined with how they identify Um, themselves, you know, we we all have different uh, understandings of our identity, and and sometimes it's been done to us, or we might do it to others. How can, what can you say about that? Like, how can we go about talking to someone, or should we talk to someone, in a way that can bring life and healing to them, but not feel like it's getting, you know, a a rebuke to them as a person. 
We it's kind of a side topic, but... We won't tell them that we recently watched the Tony Robbins documentary on Netflix. It was very interesting. Everybody should watch it. It'll take you into all these weird emotional places. But there's that moment where that girl stands up and she says, I, you know, I, I came here because I need, I need healing when it comes to my diet. And Tony Robbins asks her three questions. And after the third question, she's talking about how she is withholding forgiveness to her father for being a drug addict. And, like, he easily could have just zoned in on, here are some tips on dieting. But after a few questions, he's like, dieting is so not your issue. It's so much deeper than that. And we're, we're going to get down to the heart of what it is. They, in, in his world, it's motivational speaking. In our world, that's called spiritual direction. And it's when you know that something is wrong, but you have to know that you don't ever know what's really actually wrong. You only know that something is wrong. So even if the actions that, somebody are, that somebody's doing are completely obvious, you know that something is wrong. And maybe it's obvious that those actions are wrong, but what is really wrong, like in, in one of the other Gospels, it says that Jesus withered the fig tree down to its roots. Like really down there is what's really going on, and you can't know that, they can't know that, until you have a healthy discussion of questions and listening. Questions and listening help us navigate what's wrong in somebody's life without rebuking them. And by helping, there's nothing healthier for a person than when they, over time, discover the root system of their own issues. So you can get somebody to stop acting in five minutes. It might take five years to get somebody to heal, but that second one, even though it took longer, is way better. Way better. There are things that God is confronting us on that he's not going to... He, there are things that God knows wrong with me that he's not going to talk to me about for another 25 years. He's slowly showing me more and more and more about where my gifts are coming from and where my downfalls are coming from and like wh wh where the good and the bad and the ugly, where it's all coming from slowly. He doesn't... I don't know the full extent of my gifts yet and I don't know the full extent of my wickedness yet. He shows it over time, so that I can be part of the discovery, so that humility can stay, so that confidence can stay without either an overinflated ego. If he, if he told you all your gifts right now, you'd walk out of here super pumped and nobody would like you anymore. Nobody would like you anymore. And if he told you all your wickedness right now, you would never be able to stand up under the weight of it. He's always slowly giving us time to discover it on our own with him and to have it live into the character and the moment that we're walking in. So, two things. One, one of the most important things, I agree with everything you said, one of the most important things is you got to listen, though. Because yeah. by listening, that gives you clues to what you're looking at. Mm -hmm. But the other thing that I tend to do, Jackie, is as I'm talking to them, I'm praying. Yes. So it's like, Lord, what's the next question? What is it that I, I'm doing oh, yes. something? So, like, just be yeah. prayerful while you're doing it. So it's really... Way, a two-way dialogue. You're talking to the Lord as you're talking to the other person. And that'll give you some insight in terms of well, this isn't such a good thing to say or whatever. So, so um, yes, that, that's really good. So then the reveal, rebuke, and uh, restore um, is not on us. It's not our responsibility, right. but for lack of better words, we're the vessel that can uh, 
help each other open up. Yes, we can help each other go through that process. Go through it. Stay in that process. Not but abandon it's not or abort our, that it's process. It's not our duty to take that on ourselves and say, I'm going to reveal this about you, then I'm going to rebuke it. And you're going to be restored yeah. once I do that. None of us are good enough to do that. Yeah. None of us are. Here's the thing. How many have heard this phrase? Love, uh, love the sinner. You can't do that. That's a dumb phrase. <laughs> it's a stupid thing to say. You can't. None of us. Know, we don't know enough about what the sin is to even know what we're hating. Number one. And I don't know about you, but me and my sin are so one sometimes that you can't hate my sin and not hate me. Right? Only God is precise enough to know what is really me and what is really my sin. So Brian Zond says it this way. It's not love the, love the sinner, hate the sin. It's love the sinner and hate your own sin. That's what he says. Love the sinner and hate your own sin. Don't hate theirs. Focus on yours. You can't. Nobody can know. You might be looking at immoral actions, and that's not the sin. That's the symptoms of the sin. You could, I could throw up right now, and I could throw up for a thousand different reasons. The throw up is not the problem. That's the symptom of something going on. And certain people are qualified to know what that is. And here's the thing. Jesus is the only human being who is qualified to surgically see the difference between you and your sin. So I don't even agree with Brian's up because I don't know that I could hate my own sin without hating me. We just got to lay off what only belongs to God. Love each other. What does Paul say? When you love your enemy, it's like heaping hot coals on their head. Loving somebody, you can love somebody into submission. You can love somebody into that and, and keep them in that process. Uh, there's one more thing to say on this. Uh, most of our friends preach the same texts every Sunday that we preach. And I never, I never, I don't want to know what Chris is preaching before I preach. I just want to preach mine and then listen to what we should have said when I listen to Chris. And Chris, with the woman at the well last week, Chris points out that the disciples, I never saw this before. The disciples get to the well and they say to each other, why is he eating with that woman? Why is he sitting with that woman? Why are they talking? And it says that they didn't say anything to him. And Chris points out that they were becoming more sanctified. Their silence allowed Jesus the space to say to the woman what needed to be said to her. Their lack of talking was the best thing they could have said to that woman. Because if they would have said even the right things that were on their mind, they would have interrupted Jesus and he wouldn't have had that conversation with her. So Chris points out that most of the time, it's what we don't say to people that gives them the space to hear God say it to them. And then my other friend, Chris, I have three Chris's in my life, Chris Green, Chris Brewer, and Chris House. Chris Brewer... At the same time, he's preaching that sermon, he's preaching that text, and Chris Brewer points out that the woman runs to the town and says, this guy told me all that I ever did. Obvious. But Chris sat back and was like, 
Have you ever had an experience where somebody told you all of the things you ever did and you felt better when it was over? <laughs> How is it that Jesus unloaded the truth about all the things that this woman has done and it unburdened her, it didn't further burden her? Because he's the only one who knows how to do that. He's the only one who knows how to tell you what you're doing wrong and have it unburden you and not further burden you. When we, we, we do not have the holiness to just tell each other all the things we're doing wrong without making the other person feel like garbage. So the disciples get quiet. Jesus speaks and she's unburdened because Jesus said all the things that they maybe wanted to say, but he says it better. He says it in a way that unburdens us. So it's complicated. It's complicated. That wasn't really about prayer. But I was just like, it's of course because it is about it's prayer. It's about prayer because <laughs> we kind of like took a little turn there. Praying with each other, praying for each other, and then understanding that when we are talking to each other, that is one of the ways that we pray. Because especially when you're talking to people of the household of faith, we are the body of. So when we talk to each other, we're communicating with the body of. It's prayer. It's prayer. And we have to keep, our job is to keep each other in the reveal, rebuke, restore process. When it's revealed, you might want to run and hide. When you're being rebuked, you might feel like garbage about yourself. When you're being restored, you might think everything is fine now and run directly into the next problem because you have this false sense that everything is great. So we have to keep each other in this never-ending process of reveal, reveal, rebuke, and restore. All right, let's jump to the John text real fast. Another quote here from the same author. Choices have much more to do with effective attitudes than with abstract questions of right and wrong. The Christian choice is more likely to involve strong feelings of reluctance, even of rebellion, before the choice is finally made. The important choices we make take place in a prayer that is marked by turbulence until resolution comes. So most of the decisions we have to make, most of the choices we need to make to better ourselves, to live in the light of God and reflect his light more fully, they're going to, those choices to make them, we're going to have to work through our own rebellion. We're going to have to work through our own sin and that's going to produce some kind of reluctance. But I, I, I put that quote there for the very last line. Marked by turbulence until resolution comes. Because prayer is a process. It's a process. And you fight through all of the truthiness of who you are. You fight through it. And so if you need to make changes in life and you're praying about those changes, in order to make the changes, you have to work through why those changes need to be made. And so you're going to be working through your own rebellion. You're going to be working through your own wickedness. And keep in mind, you don't need to hide because God is showing up. He's covering you anyway. And even if there's a rebuke, it's also a salvation. This is what he does. But you don't stop praying when you start to feel those icky feelings. Those icky feelings are God beginning to let things come up and bubble out and heal. Whatever comes up while you're praying is what God is laying his hands on. It's what God is touching. It's what God is healing. Say that is one of the 
quietness and also whatever turbulence or um, inconsistent discord that might be going on inside the individual. Sure. Because we would be resistant to the show up. Sure. I like that word resistance because Brother Randy uses that word when he says that um, that's where change happens is when there's resistance happening in the choice and you continue to push through the resistance, that's when the change happens. It doesn't happen before the resistance when things are easy. It always happens in the resistance. That was yeah. a good word. And, and yes. Who wants not to explain, right? Who's the one? <laughs> yeah. I've learned this part. The, the, the more, he, more he starts to stop you, the more you go forward. Because that's not from God. God doesn't wanna, want you to not come to prayer meeting. God does not want you to not to read the word. Right? We know what's resisting you. Yes. <laughs> so let's, let's use this as a quick example because this is important. So let's just, let's... One of my favorite things to do is to build a straw man argument and then burn it down, right? It's fun. So, straw man, straw man argument. You ever do that in the car, like, when you just, like, you're, you're feeling aggressive, so you just pretend somebody said something to you, and then you tell them off? Like, did it even really happen? Or the shower, like, your shower is ten minutes longer than it normally is, because you're still building the argument. You're still, or for me, I'm, I'm preaching glorious sermons in the shower. I don't know. But anyway, either or, tomato, tomato. So you invite people to a prayer meeting and people, and all of a sudden, like, you're like, you know, I want these five people to come to my house and pray. And like one person doesn't ever come in that moment. They're meeting some kind of resistance. If we make it about coming to the prayer meeting, we're going to miss the whole point of prayer. What did they just bump up into They're like, Yeah, I want to be there. I want to go. This is great. And then all of a sudden they never come. What? The invitation to that prayer meeting is now revealing something. We could say, get your schedule together, deny yourself, do all this stuff. Or that, what that person needs is you, not in the prayer meeting, but other time, to talk with them and say, what happened? When you said you wanted to go, what were you feeling? What was right in you? And then when you, for the last seven weeks, didn't come, how were you feeling when you weren't there knowing we were there? What was going on? What felt all of a sudden false in you? Did you feel good about not going? Maybe, maybe God's talking to that person about not overbooking themselves. And they said yes to the prayer meeting in a sinful way. And they should never have said yes in the first place. Or maybe, you know, more nefarious things are going on. But it's like in those moments when we, when we see something go wrong... It's so vital. Like in John chapter one, Jesus is called the word of God. And then in Matthew, I mean, in Luke, when we see Jesus as a child, he's listening and he's asking questions. So the word before it ever spoke, listened and asked questions. That is our approach to anything that we know is going wrong. I'm saying this is in your marriage, husbands and wives ask questions. You do not know what you think you know. Ask questions. In a situation like that, even if you know the enemy is attacking somebody, ask questions. Because the enemy wants to attack us by thinking it's our job to rescue the person. It's our job to guide. Tomorrow, we're going to be... I'm going to just give my whole sermon now. Tomorrow, we're going to be talking about how we all have one purpose, and that is to be shepherds. 
We're called to lead and guide and nudge and direct, but we're not called to force a course. And so have that shepherd mindset as you are approaching people, especially when something's going wrong. No one feels more vulnerable about themselves than when something is going wrong. And the person who has things going wrong and they're not talking to you or anybody else about them, that person's, they know how vulnerable they are. They're not feeling good about themselves. The last thing they need is for you to tell them what they already know. Right? They probably just need a cup of coffee and to you remind them that you still love them. And things have a way of just bubbling out of us. So, we got to move. John here. Nathaniel comes to Jesus. This is prayer. Nathaniel comes to Jesus. And here we go. Prayer process opens us to God's conversation that we are very good. Nathaniel shows up after just totally disrespecting Jesus. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Elitist, racist... All these, all these ists that Nathaniel was. And Nathaniel shows up and Jesus goes, somebody in whom there is no guile. It's like, how could you say that about me? I just had an attitude about where you were from. When we pray, we enter into the conversation that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are always having about us. And they're always talking about how very good we are. When you listen in on the Trinity talking about you, you're going to hear things about yourself that are so good, you're actually going to hate to hear it. Because you can never possibly believe that what they're saying is true. How can you tell me that there's no deceit in me? One commentator said the reason why Jesus could say that there was no deceit in Nathaniel was because he was honest about how he felt about where Jesus was from. So even if you got sinful thoughts in you, say them to the Lord. Because God would rather hear you say terrible things about him than to say nothing to him at all. Because that's a lie, saying nothing. Telling the truth is telling the truth. Good, bad, or ugly. Mm -hmm. So he says, an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. So, and that's, that's, that's the part that made me laugh today, where Nathaniel's like, nothing good can come from now. So I don't want to meet him. You're an almost perfect person. Oh, how do you know me? I didn't know you knew me. Did you hear people talking about me? Where did this come from? Then, you ready? Prayer process opens us to seeing God at the origin of our worst. Where, did, where does Jesus tell Nathaniel he saw him? Sitting where? What did Adam and Eve cover themselves with? Jesus might have been saying, I walked by you before earlier today and you didn't know I saw you. Or Jesus might be making a much more mystical comment saying, I saw you, Nathaniel, when you were hiding with Adam behind all those false coverings. I saw you then. I see you now. You don't need to hide anymore. And Nathaniel's response is, you are the Messiah. You are the one who saves. So Jesus goes all the way and says, Nathaniel, you are hiding from so many things. You're hiding behind so many things. I saw you then. I see you now. I'm happy you're here. There's no deceit in you. You can stop hiding. And he says, you're, you're something about Jesus saying that to him opens him up to the fact that not only does he need to be saved, but he is already. You're the Messiah. Then... Jesus says something interesting. He says, you will see 
angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Where do we hear that phrase in the Bible? Angels ascending and descending. Jacob's ladder. When Jacob, the deceiver, Israel, in whom there was deceit. Do you see this connection? Jacob was Israel who had deceit. And because of his deception, he's on the run. He's hiding. And in a moment of him being on the run and hiding, he realizes that the house of God is wherever he is. So now Nathaniel, in whom there is no Jacob, in whom there is no deceit, Jesus says, I am the ladder that Jacob saw. And in the same way Jacob said, this is the house of God and I didn't know it, Nathaniel, you can say the same thing and stop running. You don't have to run like Jacob was running. You're already there. So prayer process opens us to seeing we are always already there. When you pray, it helps us realize we are always already there. You are always exactly where you need to be for God to impact your life. You don't need to get to him. You're already there. And like Jacob says, and you didn't even know it. On the run, you're still at the house of God. In the promised land, you're at the house of God. In Egypt, you're in the house of God. Wherever you are, you are already there. All right, I can see these guys getting our breakfast ready. So this last part with the fig tree. So we have Adam and Eve hiding behind fig trees. We have Jesus telling Nathaniel, I saw you when you were hiding with Adam and Eve behind the fig trees. Then Jesus shows up in, in Matthew and he curses the fig tree. He goes up to the fig tree and he curses it because he curses those things that curse us. And we, he, he, sees, he sees the fig leaves in Genesis and he takes them off Adam and Eve. He sees Nathaniel sitting under the fig tree and says, you don't have to be there anymore. Then he totally metaphorically is now entering his passion, the final act of love and redemption, and he inaugurates that moment by withering a fig tree and saying, what I'm about to do is going to make it so that you never have to cover yourself again. Mm -hmm. I'm withering your need to be on the run and to be dishonest all the way to its roots. From now on, all you have to do is just say the truth of what's going on, and that will be enough. You don't have to hide. He will never have to say to us, Anthony, I saw you sitting under the fig tree. There is no more fig tree. It's only the light of God covering our darkness. That's all it ever is now. And what does he say? He says, if you have faith, you can remove what mountain? This mountain. And every good commentator will tell you, Jesus didn't just say any mountain. He said, you can remove this mountain. What mountain is he talking about? He's talking about Jerusalem. Why is he talking about Jerusalem? He just flipped tables in the temple. He's saying, this whole structure of law and condemnation, this can all get thrown into the sea by you simply just saying, Lord Jesus, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Praying the prayer of repentance is throwing the mountain into the sea. Every time we pray a prayer of repentance, we are throwing that mountain into the sea. That mountain is the mountain of 
every time I do something wrong, I have to do all these things to be made right, and it's constantly, and there's too many laws, and there's too many things to follow, and it's legalistic, and I'm never right, and I, we're transacting, and it's, it just became such a disaster by that point. And we've done the same thing with the New Covenant, by the way. We have had as many ridiculous rules and ways to condemn people in the New Covenant as they did in the Old. This is not about Jews and Christians. This is about the way humanity uses rules to control and coerce people in all the worst ways. And Jesus is saying, you can throw all that into the sea by just coming to me in faith. The whole mountain of condemnation, law, can be thrown into the sea of grace. Like that. And he says, if you have faith. Well, what is one thing that Jesus likens faith to? If you have faith the size of a? If you have faith the size of a mustard seed. Well, this is interesting. Because when we read that, we think, we focus on size. I just need a tiny little bit of faith. I only need a little, I don't need big faith, I need small faith. But I think we need to stop focusing on when he says the size, and we need to start focusing on when he says the seed. Faith is not a coin. It's not a transaction. I give God uh, a word in faith, and he gives me the thing that I'm looking for. Faith is not monetary. It's not a transaction. Faith is like a seed. This is an entirely different paradigm than what most of us have ever heard. When you have faith, faith is something that God plants in you, and that grows over time. And when you pray prayers of faith for your children, for your finances, for your marriage, for your life, over the things in you that need to heal, when you pray prayers of faith, you are planting seeds. Seeds don't sprout tomorrow. We have turned faith into a way to circumvent the whole process and get something now. I declare now that I'm healed. Declare it all you want. Say it as many times as you'd like to. I believe the prophets of Baal did the same thing. Jump around, cut yourself, freak out, dance. No fires coming down from heaven. Elijah's sitting there like, this is ridiculous. Look at you. And we're, we do the same thing. We yell, we scream, we say more, we say more. And what we're really saying is, I'm trying to muster up in me enough faith to convince God that I have it. Would you ever want any of your kids to date somebody who made them feel like they have to do that? I won't do anything for you unless you can convince me that you have enough faith in me. That's abuse. That's terrifying. Faith, you only have the amount of faith that God gave you. It's only grown as much as it's grown. And it will continue to grow over time. And every prayer you've ever prayed in faith started a seed process that now we have to cultivate and look after. And sometimes it produces 30 and sometimes 60 and sometimes 100 and sometimes it doesn't produce anything. Because harvests are not just up to you. They're up to the weather. They're up to the way other people treat the field. There's a lot of, when we pray prayers of faith and we ask God for things, a process begins that takes a whole community to get right. But they're prayers of faith. Just because you're not seeing it now, that just means the seed, the seed is still growing. It's still growing. And when it grows and blossoms and you get an answer to prayer, like I pray, Lord, I, I really believe that you called me to be a pastor. I want to be one. Well, that seed sprouted, but you still got to take care of it. Life isn't over because it grew. Now there's a whole new world of responsibility when you have something that's producing fruit. So we have to see prayer that way. Okay. I want everybody to be able to eat. And then we're going to do a little exercise with Psalm 22 after breakfast.
So if you have any questions, write them down. Uh, can we put our hands together for these guys who have been here for a really long time? If you have kids in there, you can go get them so that they can have something too and so that the uh, nursery volunteers, they don't even know we clap for them, and the nursery volunteers can, uh, can eat as well. Lord Jesus, bless this food. Make it health and strength to our bodies. In Jesus' name we pray and everybody said. Amen. Every man and woman for yourself, fight to get there. All right, all right, all right. So what we want to do, we want to just take maybe like not much more than 20 minutes or so here and do a little bit, Stuart. Stuart, you look great in purple. Lavender. I'm sorry. I also love that you corrected me on the color of purple and lavender, but that's fine. Hey man, you are. Own it. So what we want to do now is we just want to do a little bit of a, a back and forth. I want you guys to take us through this. I'm going to put a very famous verse up on the screen. Ian can put that up now. Uh, go to the, uh, skip that one. Skip that one. This one. Jesus is on the cross, and he says the famous phrase, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So here's Jesus, feeling all the resistance, all the turbulence. He could easily be fighting through, did anything I do work? Did anybody listen? Is this, was, is this for nothing? So let's talk about this. What do you think Mark wants us to be feeling when, G, when he writes that Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What, 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 are, what does this make us feel like? And what kinds of emotions are we, are, are we supposed to be provoked into feeling that Jesus is feeling? Abandonment. 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 What else? Yeah. Fear. Let's keep digging. Pain. pain. Not just physical pain, but maybe relational pain. I thought you were supposed to be more for me than this. Maybe rejection. Mentally. Yes. Have we felt these things before? Yeah. Mental, mental strain, anyone? Yeah. <laughs> what else? Fatigue. 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 Yes. Just walking, gets to the cross so strong, and then it's like, you left me. You left me. Feeling defeated. Defeated. Why am I going through this? Why am I going through this? Yes. It's so painful. What kind of theology, what kind of, what kind of conclusions have people come to because of this verse regarding God and Jesus? That God turned away from him. That God turned away from him. Why do we think God turned away from him? Because he said he forsaken me. Yes. Because he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So naturally we think that God did what? Forsaken me. Forsook me. 
forsaken it to me. Do you know what language that is? I it's I believe it's Aramaic probably. What else? How do you feel when you hear Jesus say this? If, G- if Jesus could lose the Father, what am I? What spectacular loss am I capable of having? Thanks, Claire. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't thinking of that. Yeah, right. Never thought of that before, Claire. But now, let's just add a new layer to my debilitating anxiety. Thank you. New reasons to stay up at night and not sleep. What's that? I'm not going to fix this one. Right. Jesus is going to fix it for us in a minute, but... You know, Stuart, you know, um, Noel Jones said that it's every job of a preacher to start his sermon by getting Jesus into a lot of trouble and then end his sermon by getting him out of it. So how are you going to fix this one? I'm not. I'm not. What did you say? Ooh, that we can't trust God. Right, because if God is turning his face from Jesus, and he said, I'll never leave you or forsake you, why did we hear that God turned his face from Jesus? Because of sin. We said things like, God cannot look on sin. Did he look at Adam? Hmm. Hmm. He looked at Adam, but somehow can't look at Jesus? Yes? Also, he's crying with a loud voice. Mm. Mm. So God is wondering, why is he screaming? Ooh, love it. That's a really good point. Why is he yelling, do we think? (laughs) Getting it out. (laughs) Saying it. Mm-hmm. All the things that he said, all the things that was just mentioned, mm-hmm. that was the way to the world. Yep. So God had to turn away from sin. Let's see. Okay. Let's see. <laughs> Does anybody know, and I'm sure you do, what Jesus is quoting? Yeah. <laughs> Correct. That's a real verse. What did he say? Psalm 22. Jesus is quoting Psalm 22. Now, some people will say that in Psalm 22, David prophetically uttered what Jesus was going to say. Fine. Other people, and I like this one, say that Jesus, that David wasn't quoting Jesus in Psalm 22, which we're going to go to right now. That Jesus was quoting David because Jesus makes our prayers his prayer and turns all of our prayers into the right ones. So Jesus cries out. He's, Jesus is the son of and also the son of David. So here's the son of David praying the prayers that David prayed. 
He's praying our prayers back to God. Any prayer that you pray, Jesus prays it to the Father and makes it right. So that's one thing to know. Jesus prays our prayers to God. You know, when we're done reading the Bible, we say the word of the... When we're done talking, Jesus says, and the Father says, the word of my children. He prays our prayers back to him the way that we pray his word to him. So it's important to know this. So, so is it possible then that the, the few people that were at the cross that had placed hope in him as the Messiah were feeling forsaken by God on that moment? We're feeling like you just took away our hope, possibly, and that his loud voice was reaching them to be able to for them to hear their prayers aloud mm. also. Yes. So let's assume that if you're there, you know, like if I said right now, in him I live and move and have my being, you know that I'm quoting scripture. So I'm assuming my God, my God, why have you forsaken me was a popular one among people because let's face it, we feel like that on a regular basis. <laughs> And so when Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? To them, that's like hearing, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. It's a very famous psalm. And so what he's maybe telling us is, go to Psalm 22 and hear what I'm actually praying. This is what's on, Psalm 22 is on Jesus' mind as he's dying. So let's find out why. First of all, I just want to say this. Everything you just did with one verse, do that when you read the Bible. All of our sermons, everything I preach starts, before I open a book, it starts with doing exactly what we just did. I read commentaries to firm up what is coming out as I'm asking all of these questions about the texts. So when you read, this is just one verse, we could probably go for another 15, 20 minutes collectively. Read some scripture and then ask yourself, what is going on? What are other people thinking? What does this provoke in me? Does this make me mad? Does this make me scared? I wasn't scared until Claire mentioned that, you know, okay, now, now this is terrifying, right? So Jesus has Psalm 22 on his mind as he's passing away. You know, like in every movie where somebody passes away and then the police get there and like the guy died and he's pointing to something. And like, Why is he pointing to that coffee mug? Was he poisoned? Right? <laughs> Jesus is dying and he's pointing to Psalm 22. And he's saying, I have very few things left to say to you. Read Psalm 22 as one of them. So can we agree this is probably important? Yeah. So let's go to Psalm 22, Ian will put it on the screen, and let's just read through it slowly and talk about what's happening in Psalm 22. So we're starting with David saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. What is he saying? What's going on here? How's he feeling? What's going on? He feels that he's missing out on God, that he's yeah. being separate. Yeah, so th this, this part right here sounds a lot like what we just said Jesus was feeling, right? 
But Jesus wants us to read the whole psalm to know what's really going on. All right? So let's see what happens. We're going to read verses 3, 4, and 5 here. So I cry by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. What just happened when David said yet? Yet, you are enthroned. What's going on in him as he's praying? He starts with, you've forsaken me, you're nowhere to be found, but now what happened? What just happened now? He's remembering. Yeah, reminding himself. He's feeling all night, but he's stating the truth that he believes. We're going to go places today. This is great. This is great. He's feeling one way, but he's saying other things. From the past that are keeping him from drowning in what he's feeling. So what did we say before breakfast? Prayer is a process. And the goal is not to get an answer. It's to become something new while we pray. So it starts out with, why have you forsaken me? You're so far from saving me. I cry all night. I find no rest. Yet I have these stories. Where you didn't forsake people and you didn't forget about them. And he starts saying in prayer those stories. Anybody got a few of those where God came through for you? So Jesus is on the cross saying, I know what you're thinking while you're looking at this. It looks like everything is over, but go read Psalm 22. Go read Psalm 22. I want you to know what's really happening here on the cross. So it starts with, why have you forsaken me? That was Jesus' clue to get us to Psalm 22. But now, it's opening up. All of a sudden, David goes from feeling forsaken to remembering. Let's read a couple more. Uh, 6, 7, and 8. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Now what's going on? So David is forsaken, then he starts remembering, but now he says, I'm a worm and not a man scorned, everybody's yelling at me and mocking me. Now what's happening? Now what is he feeling? He's kind of speaking reality, right? Speaking reality? He's telling the truth about what's going on? Saying it in a fuss? Feeling ridiculed? Feeling ridiculed? What else? What's he feeling about himself? Low. 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 Dirty. Gross. Defeated. Defeated. So he feels forsaken, remembers how God came through, and now, because he's a little stabilized from remembering, he's now able to tell the truth. But notice he couldn't say that part first. First it was, why have you forsaken me? Then it was, hold on. You've come through for people before, and that sets a groundwork, and now he can start talking about how he's feeling. But that feeling part came third. He didn't just jump into how terrible he feels about himself, because maybe he didn't know yet, or maybe he didn't have words for it yet, but the process of prayer first was a vent. You've forsaken me, you've left me, I find no rest, but I know you've come through before, but I feel like garbage about myself right now. Do you see this? evolving discussion with God that he's having. 
This is what Jesus is thinking about while he's on the cross. He's going through this process. Now watch this. Now remember, it starts with, you have forsaken me, okay? 9 and 10. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth. And from my mother's womb, you have been my God. Now what is he saying? Now what's going on? protected me. What was he remembering before? What he's done for the generations. Now what is he remembering? You see this? First it was you forsaken me. Then it was you've been there for other people. Now I'm the one in need of for you to be here. And you've done it before with me. So do you see how abandonment is slowly starting to go away? He starts with feeling abandoned, but now he's remembered, okay, you didn't abandon our generations, but now that I think about it, there's been times in my short life that you didn't abandon me. So strength is being built here. Something is happening while he's praying. Now we'll read verse 11. Watch this. Now it starts with, why have you forsaken me? Now what is he saying? Be not far from me. For trouble is near, and there is none to help. What is he saying there now? Is he really feeling abandoned if he can say to somebody, if he can even talk to this person? Do you see what's happening in him? All of a sudden, it was like, you're nowhere to be found. Now it's, don't be far. So at first, I thought you were nowhere to be found. Now I know you're here, but just don't be too far. Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I'm poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up. My tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs encompass me. Evildoers encircle me. They've pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and glow over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. What is he doing now? He's going in. He's going in. But what do you think what do you think's happening inside of him though? Why is this happening? Why is he now being able to spill all of this? Why? Being transformed. He's actually the more we hear him complain, the more strength is being built. Because he's meeting turbulence, and instead of being frustrated that he's having a bad prayer time, he's using the turbulence to say, I'm just going to say exactly what I'm feeling here. I'm emaciated. You can see I'm a skeleton. I had nothing to eat in a really long time. I can count all my bones. God, you're not really providing here. They've pierced my hands and feet. All of my clothes, they're now gambling over them. But it's coming from a position of strength made possible by remembering ancient past, remembering his past, and also telling the truth. You look like you want to say. What are you thinking? I was thinking of how it just seems to parallel Job. Mm. In what way? I, I've often... Like, I've come to the conclusion that Job was probably a parable. 
mm-hmm. a story that was meant to point to something. And I, but I've never really thought of Joe possibly being Jesus, hmm. and or like pointing towards a you know type of Jesus. And I was just thinking how that list of things that he was feeling seems to remind me of Job. Yes, and look at the difference, if you bring up Job, look at the difference in prayer. Job and David are just saying the truth. What are Job's friends doing? Trying to figure out why this is happening. Do you see almost the poetic beauty of just telling the truth versus the clinical, formulaic, yeah. Maybe this is happening because of this. And if you stop doing this, then this would stop happening. Like, there's something about that prayer that's so toxic. And there's something about just telling the truth that feels so fruitful. Is that yeah. why most churches would have testimonies to help the people in the church know that the person had a struggle and they went prayer and God brought them through this? It was a process, like you said. We have to hear that stuff. Yes. Yeah. Yes. We have to hear that stuff because we have to have things that we call to mind that we can remember. I need to remember what happened with you. I need to remember what God did in your life. It's important. It builds our faith to hear. It plants our. It plants faith in us to hear each other's testimony. Well, Pastor, back in the Old Testament, what about the stones so that they would remember? Yes. Pass it on to the generations. That's exactly right. So. In, it might be this Bible that Jacqueline ruined in the rain one time. Oh. <laughs> he brings it up every time. He, yeah. he brought it up this morning before this. I said it, it gave you a, a nice connection with me to tell a memory. And right. I'm doing what you just told me. You said to tell the memory. I'm telling everybody the memory. It was raining. It was pouring. The old man was snoring. And you ran inside with my Bible. I was, you know. It's always, I, I like to remind of these stories because I, I want Jacqueline to know how much she's been redeemed since then. Like God I knew you were a man of God who needed to read his Bible, and I said, I've got to bring it in. I wasn't even home. I know why you did it. You did it because my mother bought me this Bible. Look, it's from my mom. Anyway, that's neither here nor there. ADHD moment. ADHD moment. What is that? We both went like this at the same time. Yeah. That's going to be a TikTok. One of them boomerangs. All right. So now let's see what's going on. Okay. Oh, oh man. Bring 19, 20, and 21. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. Oh, you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. You have rescued me. Now what's happening? What's happening? Hope. His confidence in God is increasing. From you're nowhere to be found to you have saved me and you can do it again. Now, watch this. We're going to go to verse 24. I will tell your name. I will tell your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. 
And now he starts talking to us. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him. And stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. Watch this. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. He has not hidden his face. What did we start off saying? That God did what? And looked away. And Jesus is dying, pointing to Psalm 22, that right in the middle of it says, You haven't turned your face from me. You haven't forsaken me. I will get through this and testify in the great congregation. It went from, you're nowhere to be found and I have no rest and I'm going to die, to, you have never left me. You haven't turned your face from me. And I will speak of this and Jesus takes it even that much further and says even after I die I still will stand there one day and speak into the land of the living so look at what happened there it went from I'm utterly forsaken to you've never even turned your face from me at all so what do you think Jesus is trying to tell us on the cross what do you think he's trying to communicate It's not over. I'm still here. I Have haven't faith. left you. Have faith. Have faith. He had every trial. I guess it's a testimony. He's testifying on the cross. Yes. He's telling us by quoting one of the verses to read the whole thing. And he's telling us even when it looks like this, he will never turn his face away from you. Um, years ago, I, I used to listen to the teachings of the rabbi, Rabbi Daniel Lappin, uh, and uh, have many of his tapes. But he said that the Jews had a, a real unique way of narrowing this down to a real simplistic way of understanding it. And he said the Orthodox Jews would carry one verse in each pocket and on one side it said, I'm nothing but a worm. And in the other pocket, the verse said, but you've made the stars for me. Mm. In order to keep that whole idea in balance. And let's talk about that. Why didn't they just have the verse that said, you made the stars for me? Why did they have the other one there too? Why would they carry both of those? And not just the good one, the positive one? That's life. That's, I mean, that's life. <laughs> yes. It's not always one way or the other. I mean, it's a combination and a mixture, and depending on how we're able to divide what we're reading, even you led us to verse one that's he's speaking his his raw pain. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And he's not really um, saying it does not exist. He's he's expressing that it's there, it's real, and he's you know. Pointed out all the details of what was going on in the scenario, what it was seeing around him. But he came to certain conclusions as he reflected on who God had been to him. Yes. And that's what continually can bring us out of the holes that we fall into on a daily basis with potholes in the street. That's right. And it's allowing us to say how we feel. 
We're, we're not losing our faith by saying, you've left me. Don't say that. He'll never leave you or forsake you. No, 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 I have to say it. I have to say it because after I say it enough, I'll be able to say, you've never left me. You've never forsaken me. You've never gone. But I can't say, I can say academically that he hasn't left me, but I can't say it from my soul until I say he has. Until I finally hear myself yell out the absolute worst and realize it's not true. So you said, well, just, we should be teaching each other not to say those things. No, we should be helping each other say it, scream it, say it loud, because on the other side of telling the truth, the rest of the truth comes. But if we don't say the front end of the truth, we don't say, I'm a worm and not a man, we can say all day long, you made the stars for me, and we won't believe it. Until we say, I'm nothing but a worm, but you made the stars for me, so I must not be. That's the full embodiment of being human. Jesus did it. How come in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, what, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, what is Jesus doing in Gethsemane when he's in the garden? Praying. Praying? What else is happening to him? He's being ministered to by angels because he's having a really hard time. What is he sweating? And what is he saying to the Father? Get me out of this. Right. After he went through the pain, was going through the pain. Then he said, right? Yes. But he said the other stuff first. Because not my will but yours be done means nothing if I first can't say, get me out of this. I don't want this to happen. But what happens in in Gethsemane in John's gospel? Deep, deep trivia here. What happens in John's gospel? Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus is falling apart in the garden, sweating blood saying that he's almost dying, needing his disciples to pray for him. Please pray for me. Angels are ministering to him because he can't even stand up. But what happens in the garden in John's gospel? He doesn't suffer. He says, what am I supposed to say? Save me from this hour? It's for this hour that I came. Like, hold on, Jesus, you're confusing. Because these other guys said that you did say that. But John is writing... And when Jesus walks out into the garden and says, who did you come for? They say, Jesus. He said, it's me. What happened to them? They fell. So in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, he's falling. In John, it's a completely different version of the story. And Jesus is talking and they're falling. As American journalistic Christians, we want to know which one is right. Not even the point. The pastors are writing these different versions so that we can see. A, that when you're weak, you're also strong. But also, there are times where it's okay to say, I need you, pray for me, I can't take this, not my will, yours be done, i got to get through this. And then there's other times in similar circumstances where you're going to be able to stand up in it. But both of them are true. Both of them are true. You're not supposed to like graduate from the, I'm such a worm, to, but you made the stars for me. They're not levels. They're lands that we're going to occupy all the time. That's what prayer really is. There is no such thing as a faithless prayer. There is no such thing as a prayer of doubt. Praying at all. The fact that they can say, both David and Jesus, why have you forsaken me? Who are you talking to? You clearly know he hasn't. You're talking to him. You know he's that close. 
And do you see what happens, sidebar, when we read one verse and make a whole doctrine about it? We say things like, God can't look at sin. He sure can. He sure can. Not only does he look at it, he became it for us. Yeah, because otherwise, what is he looking at? What is he looking at? <laughs> you have forsaken us at that point. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's a, there's a, you all have to come tomorrow, even though I'm telling you everything that we're going to say. <laughs> there's a quote that says, my eyes only see what they let me see. My eyes only see what they let me see. From uh, Tertullian, one of the church fathers. My eyes only see what they let me see. And there's stories where Adam and Eve's eyes are open and they can't see things anymore. There's stories for tomorrow where the man is born blind and he can see more than the Pharisees who claim to be able to see. Jesus wants the Pharisees to go blind so they can finally see. Adam and Eve's eyes are open. They can't see anything. The Pharisees need to go blind in order to be able to see. So there's clinical A plus B equals C is not the way to read this book at all. It's not the way to do it. It's poetic. It's imagery. It's metaphor. It's God telling us you're... There's a way to know that I'm there deeper than even seeing me. There's a way to know that I'm there that's deeper than even seeing me. What does it say in, uh, in the New Testament? It says in the resurrection, we will, and you've heard me talk about this before, we will know as we have been known. That's such, like, th that verse will skip by. But that's saying, like, right now I know about something by discovering it. I learn about Ron by me discovering Ron. But it's saying in heaven, we will know as we've been known. Not as we've discovered, but as we have been discovered. It's a whole different category of knowing, and some of that begins to happen now. I can't see you, but something in me that's more accurate than sight knows that you're here now. It's more than sight. There is a way to see somebody in your life and still think they have left you. We've said it to each other all the time. Like, we're not connecting anymore. We're there, but we're just, some, something's really off. So you can see somebody and still feel forsaken by them. David is, and Jesus are going really deep and saying, I don't see you. But uh, something, something in me that's greater than observable insight is knowing that you're there. Come on. Come on. I love that. I love that.
relationship, even though they, <coughs> even though all the cycles, Matthew, Mark, and Luke may have been seeing it from one perspective, but of course John was his bosom and buddy. Was seeing it from you know he was getting the, the essence of yeah. It's, it's fun to talk about it. It's fun to talk about it because uh, Father John Bear, who is a Greek Orthodox priest, he says that the transfiguration on the mountain happens in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But there is no story of the transfiguration in John because Jesus is transfigured on every page of John. So what they would say is they're not describing two different events. Jesus in pain asking for help is Jesus standing up in strength. So remember, weeks ago, we talked about how Jesus died, and he didn't, he didn't go down to hell and preach. He was dead. But his being dead was the sermon that he preached in hell. So you can say he was dead, or you can say he went to hell and preached. But when we hear he went to hell and preached, we see, we, we see that only from one category. But Jesus' being dead is the sermon that he preached in hell. And it is how he led captivity captive. So Jesus saying, why have you forsaken me? Let this cup pass. Somebody please pray with me. When you see that transfigured, it's him standing there being strong. Because when you are weak, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, then you are John. So it's, we, we have to read it not like journalists looking like dissecting a historic event. We have to read it like congregants hearing a sermon that is spinning these stories so that all of the different facets of it are creating a new meaning for us. But if we only ever got the Jesus was weak or Jesus looked strong story, we would never be able to put those two together. So God has created all of us with our own personalities, our our own voices and viewpoints. And I think that's why we need the harmony of everybody's voices together, all being different to provide a more holistic understanding of God and a way of knowing him in a more full way. Because if it's just one story or the other, we're only getting a very small part. If we're only ever focused on our own voice and how we see things, we're only ever getting that very small understanding of God. That's why I said in Proverbs, the isolation the quarrels against all sound wisdom when we separate ourselves. Yes, yeah, very much so. Excellent. You could probably explain it better than me, but in terms of what you said, Jackie, about perspective, I learned years ago that each of the gospel writers had a unique perspective of Christ, even though they all told the same story. So Matthew saw him more as Messiah, and Mark, and I'm, if I get it wrong, correct me, and Mark saw him more as a servant. Luke saw him as a man, and John saw him as more of God. So from each of those perspectives, it was the same person and the same story, picking up on what you were saying, it's like pick up a diamond. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's the same diamond. You turn it this way, you get a look. You turn it that way, you get a slightly different look. So there were four of the gospel writers and just a slightly different perspective. That's amazing. Yeah. And do that with everything you're going through. Yeah. You're, going, you're going through something at work, something really bothered you. Before you make a conclusion, spin it once. Look at it from a different angle. Spin it again. 
before you open your mouth and start talking to people, before you start sending out your group text chains about how much you want to quit your job, and spin it a few times. Jesus in the garden is asking for help. Jesus in the garden is trying to get out of it. Jesus is bleeding. Jesus is standing. Jesus is the one knocking other people down. Spin it. Don't just receive it the one way you experienced it and never spin it. Spin everything you're dealing with. Financial pressures, health issues. Keep spinning them. Because there's different lights that God wants you to see these things in. I think, I think that's it. We're almost done. Yes. Yeah. Yep. That's that's exactly it. We read one verse, Jesus saying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we make all of our theological assumptions on the one verse. Well, guess what we do in real life? We hear one person's opinion and we make all of our assumptions on that one opinion. We exp- we hear the way somebody said something and we only decide this means exactly how I felt it means. Just like Jacqueline was saying. We, the way, I think uh, Elder George said this recently. I say recently, you've said it. <laughs> the way that we read the Bible is also going to be indicative of the way we read people and situations. Yes. So if you're trying to find a verse for that, you're going to be sifting through somebody's life trying to find one thing that you like and not accepting the other stuff. If you just hear one verse, Jesus saying, why have you forsaken me? We're going to create a doctrine that says God can't look at sin. There's nothing in all of scripture, not one thing that makes that be true, except for that one verse. And it turns out that verse, Jesus respected our time and didn't say the whole Psalm 22. He said, Psalm 22, verse one, to make us go and say, they get home that night. They're discouraged. They're crying. They're upset. They're scared. And then maybe at 3 a.m., one of them's like, why did he quote? Psalm 22. And they maybe go and read it. Is more happening here than we think? Is he going to... Are we going to hear him again? Is he going to say something to us again? How is he going to testify in the great congregation again? There's, it's pointing you... There's clues. There's a, there's a conspiracy that's happening beyond all the other conspiracies that's healing them all. That's why Dallas Willard wrote a book called The Divine Conspiracy. It's the one that just gets all around all the others and says, you're going to be okay. It's going to get rough, but you're going to be okay. I'm not going to leave you or forsake you. And look what we do. We read one verse, we make a whole big centuries of a theology over something, and we do that in our life all the time. We hear one comment. We judge a whole person's life (laughs) by one comment. One person cuts us off. And we know all there is to know about their whole entire life. <laughs> what they should have been doing, what they shouldn't have been doing, you know. Any other, any more thoughts here? Well, not to keep talking about the, um, not to beat a dead horse with the importance of 
other people's presence and voices in our lives. But before the scripture was even written, it was being passed down orally from generation to generation and things were added and things were explained throughout the generations. It, w- it wasn't just like the one story that never changed. It was like spoken through their voices and personalities. And then when it was read, it was read as a community. That's right. So it, it was not, it was not seen and like experienced and developed alone. So when we're, when we're always trying to, you know, hold on to our own opinion and not listen to what other people have to say about it, that that's where we can really miss out. Yeah. Even on, on how we read the Bible and stuff like that. It was meant to be read together. Not to say you shouldn't read it at home. Of course you should read it at home. But it was also meant to be read together with a community of people. Yeah. As we've said, other people are the rest of what God is trying to tell you. And part of prayer. Part of prayer. Let's pray. Let's stand to our feet and pray. Yes. On this table over here, everybody say Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Mother's Day. Oh, Mother's Day. I thought it was the gala. Happy Mother's Day. <laughs> Don't even try to talk about Christmas in March. What is wrong with everybody? We need men and women. And women. You, you make the announcement. I'm getting it wrong left and right. We need a group effort from everyone <laughs> to help us pull off the uh, mother-daughter tea. And Doreen has so kindly put together some sign-ups that are right over there. Um, that have different uh, tasks and things that we need help with. So please sign up on your way out. And feel super guilty if you don't. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for everything you're doing. We thank you for speaking to us the way that you do. We thank you for allowing us the freedom to say the truth of how we're feeling. And that somehow as we say our perspective, you make us more true while we pray. And so... We thank you that the truth is not information, that the truth is a person. And as long as we're trying to find the truth and information, we will fall into a never-ending abyss. But then when we realize that you are the truth, that your love for us is the truth, then we can say how we're feeling and be transformed. And so we thank you that you give us this allowance. I pray that we would give other people in our life the same allowance you give us to say how they're feeling and to go through a process of healing. We pray all these things in your name. Thanks for listening to the Salem Tabernacle podcast. For more information about us, including gathering times and our location, check us out online at salemtabernacle.com.